Thanks so much for joining me for this month's edition of the Home Run Club. We're in November. Can you believe it? Let me thank all of you who were a part of our banquet. Thank you for coming and joining us and seeing what God's doing here at Winning at Home. We are so grateful for your love and support. And as a thank you, each month we seek to bring you this little thought or idea or tip from Winning at Home that we pray and we hope encourages you. This month, again, I get to share with you a message from Steve Norman. We are so thankful for Steve's involvement at Winning at Home, speaking, doing podcasts, using his gifts and talents with us. And Steve's going to talk about how there are things in life that begin to distract us, pull us away from our foundation in the Lord and other things that are important to us. He's going to share a bit personally from his own life about the loss of his father and different things he's gone through. And my prayer is, as you listen to this message, it would again remind you, as we've been talking about a lot here at Winning at Home, build your foundation on Christ. It's solid and it will not fail. So join me now as we join Steve Live sharing this message focused on making sure we keep our focus on Christ. Today we're going to talk about what does it mean to guard our hearts from the very real threats that attempt to derail us relationally, emotionally, and spiritually. Listen to what Jesus says here as recorded by his friend Matthew. He says, make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Make a tree bad, and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Listen to that. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. You want to find out what's in your heart? Listen to what you say. And if you ever have any problems listening to what you say, my guess is that if you have like a roommate, a friend, a child, or a spouse, they will remind you of what you were saying, and that will be a hint of what's in your heart. You know what part of the curse of living in like a smartphone world is? Whenever anybody starts to have like some kind of altercation out on the streets or in a restaurant, and within seconds somebody's pulling out a phone, and what you remember happening is different from what actually happens. Why? Because the tape doesn't lie. Remember a few years ago, our family are sports fans, and we were watching a story about a female college soccer game. And this particular story, there was a woman from a school in Utah, I forget who they were playing, but she and another athlete had just been bumping against each other all day. How many of you have ever played sports and realized that the most violent athletes on the planet are high school girls playing soccer? Like, I have one of them in my home. I can testify that this is the fact. I witnessed it on multiple occasions yesterday. But in this one particular instance, this one athlete who was just, she, they were going at each other all game, and when she didn't think that anybody else was looking, she grabbed her opponent's ponytail and yanked it so hard it laid her out on the floor. And when this became visible, other people were showing her the tape in her apology. She said these words. She goes, I'm sorry, that's not who I am. And I said, au contraire, that is exactly who you are. That's why you did it, right? And so when Jesus goes, you want to find out what's in here? Listen to what's coming out of here. And if the words that you're saying are hostile words or anxious words or aggressive words or doubtful words, all that does is mirror what is happening in our hearts. So Jesus says the speech that we use in our relationships, the speech that we use when we're stressed or alarmed or scared is a dashboard indicator of what's going on right here. And if we're realizing that in our relationships, in in our speech, that there's a problem with our hearts, now is the time to get dialed in and say, what's going on really? 
And if my heart is under attack, how do I defend it? We want to be reminded, like I want Jesus had that great line. He goes, that if something pops into your heart, it's eventually going to come out of your heart. A few years ago, I had the opportunity to work at an ice cream factory. And yes, it is as good as it sounds, right? Like when you walk into work and it smells like chocolate every day, that's a nice thing. And at our particular company, we, had, we have a conveyor belt. And once those little pints of ice cream get filled up with ice cream, before they go into the freezer, they run down a conveyor line. At optimum speed, we could produce 220 pints of ice cream a minute. That line was flying. And on that line, there was an x-ray. The purpose of the x-ray is to make sure that there are no foreign objects that have made its way into an ice cream container before it goes into the freezer. And if the x-ray determines that there is or there might be a foreign object, it'll automatically kick that pint of ice cream off the line. It'll go into a bucket. And then we as operators would pick that ice cream up. We'd put it back on the line. It would go through the x-ray. If it got kicked off a second time, then it went in the garbage. Worst case scenario is your x-ray machine goes down. And if you don't know when it went down, there could have been thousands of pints of ice cream that went down the line. And then it's somebody's job to go track down what pallet those are on in the freezer, cut off all the shrink wrap, bring them back into the production room, send them back down the line again. Why? Because if, perchance, a foreign object made it into a pint of ice cream, that's a safety issue, that's a publicity issue, and that's a profitability issue. If, if, we, if we let a foreign object get into one pint of ice cream, we had to do a recall, that could cost us hundreds of thousands of dollars. And the best way to make sure that something doesn't get into your ice cream is to protect that environment from foreign objects entirely. And the scripture gives us some examples, some cautionary tales of people who failed to defend their heart from hostile and toxic foreign objects. And hopefully we're going to learn from their lessons about how to do life differently. These are people who failed to guard their hearts against anger, against lust, and against pride. Let's go to the text. First example that we find here is a guy by the name of Cain. If you know any part of the Bible story, you know like that the first humans were Adam and Eve, their sons were Cain and Abel, and if you thought that your family was dysfunctional, check this out. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. And in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. And the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry. And his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what's right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. I love that. He goes, sin is crouching at your door. Have you ever seen an animal in pounce mode? We had a Labrador retriever, and we brought our daughter home for the very first time. He was so fiercely protected of her that if I would play with her and turn her upside down, hold her by her ankles, he would be like, it's time for you to die. Like, he loved me every other moment, but as soon as he thought that my daughter was, at, like, I was going to harm her, he just, he went into full aggressive mode. And you know, it's like a loaded gun. It's like a cock spring. That animal is just getting ready to launch. And it's a, it's a very amazing word picture that God says to Cain, that's what, that's what your anger is about to do to you. If you do not guard your heart against it, it will pounce on you and rip your throat out. It's that dangerous. It's like you've, you have to guard against it. What I love about this story is it's a reminder that anger is something that every single one of us experience. 
very wise friend of mine once said, he goes, in most cases, anger is a secondary emotion. We feel anger because we felt another emotion first, and for most of us, that emotion was pain or hurt. And he goes, sometimes when we feel anger, it's important to kind of like take, take the cable and follow it all the way back to its source. Say, why am I feeling this emotion? What is going on underneath the anger? And have any of you had a time in this last week where your response to something that somebody did to you was disproportionate? Like maybe they like insulted you at a two and you came out at an 11? It's usually an indication that in our heart, something is out of whack. Something's off kilter. So God asks Cain directly, why are you angry? And to keep anger from getting a foothold in our lives, we have to answer that question first. It's not wrong to be angry, but it's important to figure out how we got there. And we must surrender that hurt behind the anger to God, maybe with the help of others, whether that's a therapist or a staff member or a small group. And I've learned the hard way that there's a difference between wanting justice and wanting revenge. You guys remember the immediate aftermath of September 11th? Wanting justice and wanting revenge, those those waters got muddy, didn't they? Wanting justice is for evil people to be held accountable for their crimes. It's a cry for God to make right what has gone wrong, for others to be punished for what they've done to us or others. But revenge, revenge is not healthy. Revenge wants other people to experience pain and suffering. And I believe that when we offer those hurts to God, it's really important for us to say, God, I don't know what to do with all this anger, but I can't manage it on my own. I'm inviting you into it. And naming that it exists and surrendering it towards God are the first steps that we can take towards guarding our heart from a spiritual force that wants to splinter us. So if there's one threat that we need to guard our hearts against, it's anger. Another threat that we need to guard our hearts against is lust. Now, I know typically when a lot of people hear lust, they think in kind of sexual temptation terms. That's not the angle that we're going today. I'm talking about the lust for influence, for power, and control. And the person that we get an example of in Acts chapter 8 is a guy by the name of Simon. It says, now for some time a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great. Anybody have anybody in your life who boasts that they are somebody great? If you don't know of anybody, go to your social media feed. You'll find one in about 14 seconds. He boasted that he was great, and all of the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is rightly called the great power of God. Now, if you already think that you're great and other people call you godlike, that is a dangerous mix, right? They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip, who was a follower of Jesus... As he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John, who were leaders in the early church, to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them, they'd simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. 
When Simon saw that the spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered the money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. So Peter sees that even though Simon is a believer in Jesus, there's something off in his heart. And he sees rising levels of bitterness and sin. And and there's two kind of layers of bitterness in this world. We can be bitter at people, right? It's kind of an extension of anger that goes unchecked. The author Skip Gray says that bitterness is the poison we drink while hoping that other people die. But bitterness can also happen in life. Has anybody ever seen somebody, they're they're just bitter at life? They're angry at their circumstances. They're angry at other people. They're angry at politics. They're angry at work. They're just, they're just angry about everything. Where does that come from? In my life, I think that anger comes from a sense of entitlement. I feel like I deserve more than what I'm getting in my relationships, in my work, in my culture, and in my life. And because there's this gap between what I think I deserve and what I actually have, this space is filled with bitterness. There's this lust for control and influence and power to get up to where I think I deserve to be. The problem with this is that if we're not careful, we end up stepping on or over people to get what we want. Lust is to manipulate other people for our own personal gain with no regard for their well-being. And that's what what Simon is guilty of here. Simon had been like on the top of the food chain in his town of Samaria. And when Philip comes into town and starts sharing the message of Jesus and healing people and casting out demons, Simon starts like losing TikTok followers to Andrew, and he's not happy about this at all. He's like, man, I, I, I have built like a great brand in this town, and I'm not the top dog anymore. And when he sees that people can actually fill others with the Holy Spirit, he goes, if I can get that, maybe I can reclaim my position and my standing. For you as a leader, God has given many of you influence through your position, through your knowledge, through your work, maybe through your athletic ability, to have influence in the sphere that you're in. And you get a choice in that position. Will I leverage my resources and gifts and knowledge to get other people to do what I want for my well-being? Or will I give my life and leadership away for the good of others? And fortunately, Simon had the wherewithal. He's the only story that we'll look at that had the wherewithal to say, that's not the person that I want to be. God, I'm sorry that I allowed bitterness and the desire for the control to overtake my heart. Will you allow me to recenter, refocus, and redirect? So Cain teaches us what? That anger is crouching at the door. Simon teaches us what? That like the lust for control and power and influence is a threat to our ability to have life-giving relationships with the people around us. And then we have one more story about another threat that might be a little bit more insidious than the others because it's less obvious. And that's the threat towards pride. We read this in Acts chapter 12. Then Herod, who was kind of the king of the area, went from Judea, that's the kind of the, the zone that Jerusalem was the capital of, to Caesarea and stayed there. 
He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon, that is modern-day Lebanon, and they now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robe, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a god, not a man. And immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, the angel of the Lord struck him down. He was eaten by worms and died. But the word of the Lord continued to spread and flourish. Anybody who thinks that the Bible is boring hasn't read this story. Now check this for a moment. Herod and Jesus could not be any more different in their attitude and in their posture. Even though Jesus is God, he lays down all of his rights and his privileges as the prince of heaven and enters into our world and hurts in all of the same ways that we've been hurt. Herod is trying to avoid discomfort and hurt at every step that he can. Herod was so proud, God visibly, publicly struck him down in front of his kingdom. God says that he opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. There's another verse that says, it's better for God to lift you up than it is for God to bring you down. Have you ever, like, because there's that other verse that said pride comes before a fall. Have you ever noticed that God loves us so much that if we're getting a little bit stuck on ourselves, he'll allow us to stumble just so that we can regain some perspective? A few years ago, some friends and I had visited Israel, and we hiked a mountain called Masada, which is like right on the shores of the Dead Sea. The mountain is super steep. It's really hot. And because we have to, like, guys are competitive, we had to make a game out of everything. We're like, hey, well, let's race each other to the top and see how fast we can do it in. So we just, we try to, like, muscle up this mountain, and we, we all get, check our stopwatches, and we get to the top, and on average, we finish it in about 32 minutes. We had no idea what to compare it to, although the guidebook said it should have taken us an hour and a half. So we're like, we're, we're just killing this place. There was no cash or prizes for winning, so I don't know why, what we had to prove, but that's what we did. Now, later in the week, we ran into another group of American tourists. And one of my buddies said to them, he's like, hey, did you guys climb Mount Masada? And they're like, yeah, we did. And then he, has, then he said something that he ought not have said. He said, uh, how fast did it take you? We did it in 32 minutes. And in my mind, I'm like, this is not going to end well. And, and they were super gracious. They said, yeah, um, yeah, we did it in 15. We're trail runners from Alaska. <laughs> you ever notice that there are moments in your life you're like, I'm a big deal. And God's like, I have somebody I'd like you to meet. <laughs> God in his mercy wants to remind us that what? The temptation, the core temptation of pride is that you are the center of the universe. And God's like, that's not true. And when you get stuck thinking that, you will have blinders that prevent you from seeing how God is at work and the needs and the gifts that other people have. So a couple lines about pride that have been helpful to me through the years. I had one friend who said that his relative said, I may not be much, but I'm all I think about. He also said, most of the time when you're wondering what other people are thinking of you, they're not. <laughs> Somebody also said, pride isn't thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. One of my friends by the name of Mark Laberton used to be the pastor at Berkeley Presbyterian Church. And Presbyterian churches, they have like a liturgy that they follow throughout the service. And one of the lines that they would say to each other on occasion as a part of their regular worship was, you are not God. 
and I am not God. Now, it sounds like an absurd thing to say out loud. Why did they do that? Just to remind each other that God is here and we can trust him. And we don't have to be God for anybody else. We don't need anybody else to be God for us. Pride, though, is like a fog. It blinds us to what is real and what is false. And when you and I walk through the fog of pride, God loses his rightful place in our perspective, and we lose our rightful place in that equation as well. Proverbs 4.23 is kind of the bow that ties all of these thoughts together. It says this, Above all else, guard your heart. For everything you do flows from it. Everything you do flows from what's in your heart, what you care about, who you choose to love, what you pursue, what you think about, what you do when you think that nobody's watching. All of these are reflectors and indicators of what's happening in our heart. And today, I just, I want to be the one to gently remind you and myself that anger will undermine your relationships. Lust will limit our opportunities to influence and lead others for good. Pride will destroy our perspective. If I'm completely honest with you, I, I have to confess that in the last week, I've been Cain. And it's exhausting. And the last week I've been Simon, and it's frustrating. And then the last week I've been Herod, and for a hot minute it's intoxicating, but before long it's debilitating. And they are dangerous places for me to land. And the reason that I have ended up in those spaces is because I have failed to guard my heart well. So what do we do? What do we do when we feel like our hearts are constantly under assault and we want to be vigilant in defending them? I'm going to give you two suggestions. The first suggestion is this. Do a daily heart check. Some of us are required by work or insurance to get an annual physical. So we have somebody who will actually like look at our heart once a year and they'll make recommendations that most of us will ignore. Some of us have devices that track what's happening with our hearts in real time, but that kind of turns into white noise as well. Hundreds of years ago, a group of Christians came up with an amazing heart check tool, and it is this. Some of you have ever, like, has any of you ever played like high-low as a family? You go around the circle at dinner and you say, what was the high point of your day? What was your low point of your day? This is a version of doing that with God. It's called the prayer of examine. I want to examine my heart. And it's either at the beginning of a day, you review the day before, or at the end of the day, you review the day that you've been in and you ask yourself two questions. First question is, where in this day did I feel close to God? Where did I feel joy? Where did I feel gratitude? Where did I feel peace? Where did I feel joy? And then just go ahead and write those down or put a note in your phone or in a journal. Where did I feel close to God? And then guess what the second question is? Where did I feel far away from God? Where did I feel anger? Where did I feel pride? Where, where did I wrestle with lust? Where did I feel like I was drifting away from my love for God or my concern from others? And then do this. Say, what were the events that led up to that moment? And I want you to try this for a week. 
You can do it on your own. You can do it with a roommate. You can do it with a small group. You can do it with your family. And then at the end of seven days, they'll kind of get to next Saturday night and say, did I notice any themes? Did I notice any patterns that God might be calling me to pay attention to? If I'm taking the pulse of my heart, what's healthy and what's not? What might need to get addressed? So, not to be too graphic, but about four years ago, we got a dog, and because I'm lazy, we got an electric fence, so I never had to walk him. Like, so when he'd go out, I'd just let him out, and then he'd come back in. The problem is, is you don't know where your dog is leaving gifts for you on your yard, so you have to go find them later. And I've learned that you can go clean up your yard once a day, or you can wait until the night before trash comes and do it all at once. Which is a better way to live your life? It's just to stay on top of that stuff. If you notice that, like, for those of you who have yards, you can weed every week, or you can weed once a summer. They will get you different results. When we think about our hearts that way, God is saying, when was the last time you checked on your heart? And if we want to avoid ending up where Cain's story did, and you can read the rest of that one when you have time in Genesis chapter 4, it doesn't end well. Spoiler alert. We can just kind of wait on the circumstances of life for the wheels to fall off, or we can be proactive. We can get ahead of it. We can start doing a heart check every day to be able to say, God, is there something that you need to show me that I wouldn't notice on my own? A pattern that could derail key relationships or my spiritual journey if I'm not careful. Because at the end of the day, there's only one person who's responsible for guarding your heart, and it's you. So the first suggestion is to do a heart check, and then the second suggestion is to consider a heart transplant. It could be that there are some of us who are like, I don't even need to do a heart check. I know that my life, like my anger level is running at about a nine and a half. And my bitterness is through the roof. And my desire to need and control and manipulate other people is not just evident to me, it's evident to everybody else. And I need, some, I need God to do something in my heart. Jesus was once having a debate with some religious leaders about a controversial issue, and they're like, hey, can we do this whenever we want for whatever reason? And Jesus said, well, the only reason that Moses allowed you to do that is because your hearts were hard. He's like, that was never God's intent for you. That was never God's ideal. And some of us are recognizing right now that our hearts are hard. Two summers ago, my father passed away. As we were preparing for his memorial service, my mom lent me his Bible. And as I was flipping through it, she said, this is a passage that was one that was most meaningful to him. I would appreciate it if you would include it in his service. It's found in Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 19. The prophet says, he's speaking on God's behalf. He says, I will give these people an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. And if you are in a situation right now where you said, God, you know that my heart is like granite. Like I've been hurt so hard, so deeply for so long that I have just built like a layer of ice around my heart so that nobody can hurt me anymore. But as a result, it's limited my ability to risk and to love and to give. And this is not where I want my life to go then I want you to pray, God, will you give me an undivided heart? Will you give me a heart that isn't half love and half hate, half joy and half anger, 
half stress and half peace. Well, give me a heart that is whole, a heart that looks like yours, a heart that reflects the things that you care about. God, will you switch out my heart of stone for a heart of flesh, a heart that is tender and gracious and kind because I can't fix what's in here on my own. And whether you need to pray a heart check prayer, God, will you show me what's going on here? Or a heart transplant prayer? God, will you switch out what's already inside of here? I believe that that's a prayer that God loves to answer. So if there is work that needs to get done in your heart, if you've left corners of it unguarded or undefended for too long, it's not too late to reclaim the heart that God wants to give you and the heart that God wants to love others through in and beyond your life. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you for your love for us. And I thank you that your heart is a heart of kindness and grace and mercy. And we want our hearts to look like yours. And so God, I pray that for those of us who who just need to do a check, who need to do an inventory, I pray that you would give us insight and discernment from the Holy Spirit. If there are threads or themes that you want us to know before they snowball into something that is ultimately dangerous for us emotionally and spiritually, give us grace to, to catch that early. And for those of us, Lord, who have, been, who have been deeply wounded and know that our hearts have been hardened, I pray that you would give us the grace to allow you to be our healer, our redeemer, our vindicator, our avenger, and our defender. God, I pray that we would come to you at our point of desperation and say, God, I can't fix this. I need you. Will you help me? And I pray that out of your love and your mercy and your kindness, you would say yes. Lord, remind us that your love is good and it endures forever. And that when we trust you, that good and enduring love can flow through us as well. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I'm glad you could take time to listen to Steve's words today. I pray they will encourage you. They will lift your spirit. And again, our goal here at Winning at Home is to give you practical, biblical insight. Our teaching, our methods are to look at God's word and say, how can we bring that into practical everyday life? So thank you for supporting us, praying for us as we carry forth with our mission. Pray you have a great Thanksgiving this month. And as we look into the season of December and Christmas, I pray that your family will be blessed by the Lord as you celebrate these seasons together.